Good afternoon. Thank you for tuning in. News Talk 95.3, Michiana's news channel. I am your host, Casey Hendrickson. Uh, Representative Jake Teshka is going to be joining us here about 3.30. We'll talk with him about concealed carry and some of the other legislation and things like that that have been going on in the latest legislative session. They're now in recess. But um, I, I, this is, I think, is going to be important. Here with Jake. Uh, gosh, I, what, we were just talking about this. We can't talk. None of us can talk this week. What is going on? There's got to be some barometer thing happening with the weather that's just like screwing up the way that our mouths work. Because I was just telling Josh this. I told him that yesterday, too. He was just saying that other coworkers are all saying the exact same thing. So there's something going on. I don't know what it is. Somebody's probably pumping poison into the building and we're all dying slowly and don't really realize it. Uh, so anyway, it's going to be important to have people like Jake on on a regular basis. Um, I got to talk with him about doing that. I know the schedules don't always allow for that when you're uh, when you're in office, but... You know, just to to get a bit of a barometer on what's actually going on at the state level. Um, a lot of the local stuff, and I'm working on one of the local stories that some of you are aware of. And, you know, it just takes a little bit of time to develop because a lot of local politics sometimes can be a little petty. Sometimes it can be a little shallow. And then in the midst of that are very big things that need to be addressed. And oftentimes they don't get covered very well. So we're working on that stuff, too. I promise I'm going to start bringing you a lot more of that hyper-local stuff. Uh, the other thing is, I've been trying to talk about this. Is it Thursday? Am I right about that, Josh? It's Thursday? I've been trying to talk about this since, like, Saturday. And I keep getting other things that happen, and I don't get to it, and I desperately want to talk about this. This is an extremely important topic. It relates to something that I've joked about for a long time on this program. And it's really serious, and, and it's important that people kind of understand that. So we're going to get into the media, their ownership, how they're lying to you, that sort of stuff. That's kind of where I want to go this first half hour before we have uh, Representative Teshka come on the program at 3.30. Because you've heard me play the montage many times on the show, brought to you by Pfizer. And I'm going to do that here in just a second. I, I want For those of you who haven't heard it, you need to hear it. But I've always told this story on the show. So... Forgive me if I'm repeating myself, and you've heard me say this a million times, but the reason that I tell this story is it is critical that you understand why certain things happen the way that they happen. When I was in Las Vegas, there is an energy company there. It's called Envy Energy that used to be known as Nevada Power. It is the only power company that exists there. They are a government-regulated monopoly. There is no competition that is allowed. Every company that's tried to come in and be a competitor has not been allowed by the government to set up operations. Even if they produce electricity in the region, they have to export that electricity out of the state. You're not allowed to compete in Clark County, Nevada against Envy Energy. Well, you've got one company. That company basically sets whatever price it wants. The uh, Public uh, Utilities Commission says yes or no on the price increase. How many times have you heard me say on this show, when you have government-regulated monopolies, they'll go to the Public Commission, they'll make a price hike request, the Public Commission will go, no, you can't have that, you can only have half of it, and then everybody collectively goes, boy, that could have been a lot worse. Yeah, we got to pay you know a little bit more, but God, it could have been so much worse. Then they come back a few months later and they just get the other the other 50%. The rate hike happens. It's all designed to manipulate people. So Envy Energy was constantly going around. They were overcharging people by saying that they were using more electricity than they really were. 
and they kept getting caught, mostly by senior citizens who got sick and tired because they're on fixed income of getting nailed with these $900 power bills. That's a common power bill where I'm from, by the way. For those of you who are considering moving to Las Vegas, uh, welcome those three to $700 power bills and things like that, depending on your house. And they started calling people out, and they were bringing the press out, and they're saying, look, I this is my meter read date from the last time to this time, and they're saying that I used a lot more than I really did. You can see it on my meter right now. And we covered the story on the show. And all of a sudden, I get called into the office after the show is done, and I am told by my boss not to talk about Envy Energy ever again. And I go, what are you, unless it's positive, of course. I'm like, what are you talking about? This is the biggest story in the city right now. Well, they pay us like a million dollars in advertising every single year, whatever it was, and they just threatened to pull that advertising not just from this station, but from the entire cluster of stations that were owned by CBS at the time. So I was effectively told, do not, do not say anything negative about this advertiser, even though this advertiser is committing a crime right now. Why? Advertising dollars. So there's a reason that I constantly bring this up. For example, cue my audio, please, Josh. If you have, oh, I don't know, a big pharmaceutical company paying news outlets millions of dollars, do you think the news outlet's going to tell you any of the negative stuff that that pharmaceutical company has done? Anderson Cooper 360. Brought to you by Pfizer. ABC News Nightline. Brought to you by Pfizer. Making a difference. Brought to you by Pfizer. CNN Tonight. Brought to you by Pfizer. Early start. Brought to you by Pfizer. Friday night on Aaron Burnett out front. Brought to you by Pfizer. This week with George Stephanopoulos is brought to you by Pfizer. This weather report brought to you by Pfizer. Today's countdown to the royal wedding is brought to you by Pfizer. And now a CBS Sports update brought to you by Pfizer. Meet the press. Data download. Brought to you by Pfizer. This portion of CBS This Morning sponsored by Pfizer. On how to find the hidden sugars in the American family diet. Sponsored by Pfizer. Get it? That's why I tell you that story. That's why I play that montage on a regular basis on the live stream for those of you who watch the live stream on rumble.com slash Casey the host. Now, here's why I'm bringing this up, okay? The Department of Health and Human Services paid for advertising of COVID-19 vaccines on hundreds of media outlets, even as the outlets often provided positive coverage for the vaccines. Despite the marketing campaign, polls have shown that Americans had mixed views on the vaccines as the year progressed. Responding to a FOIA request filed by the Blaze, HHS revealed that it had purchased advertising from major media outlets such as ABC, CBS, NBC, Fox News, CNN, MSNBC, The New York Post, Los Angeles Times, Washington Post, BuzzFeed News, and Newsmax, in addition to hundreds of local TV stations and newspapers. What's the number one reason that people turned away from Newsmax after, after leaving Fox News and going to Newsmax on election night coverage? What was the number one reason? They promoted the vaccines. So people have basically said, no, uh, we're not going to do that. The outlets provided mostly positive coverage of the COVID vaccine's efficacy and safety, which we now know was manipulated and dishonest. But we only know that now because the documents through court order have been forced to come out. In spring of last year, Congress appropriated $1 billion for the Center for Disease Control and Prevention director to, quote, strengthen vaccine confidence in the United States 
provide further information and education with respect to vaccines and to improve rates of vaccination throughout the United States. Get it? It's not just Pfizer. It's the federal government who is doing it. The Biden administration paid for advertisements as hundreds of news platforms, according to The Blaze, as part of its COVID-19 public education campaign, a comprehensive media campaign to educate people about the importance of vaccination and basic prevention measures to prevent COVID-19 and protect public health. Now, is this entirely unique? Not really. But the reason that I have done these other stories and told you what happened to me in Vegas is so you have some kind of a bearing here. If you're paying people to say certain things, they tend to say those certain things. What did I say the other day about the ridiculousness of banning Russian media in the West? Why is it that the Russians can't have any news outlets operating in the West, including in the United States, but we have our major supposed trusted news platforms who get paid by the Chinese Communist Party to carry the China Daily, which is communist propaganda, in their publications. How does that make sense? The Chinese can pay us money to use their propaganda against us, but the Russians can't have their own news agencies broadcasting their side of events in Ukraine, which oftentimes are the right side. Not every time, but sometimes. Some media outlets aired HHS commercials with celebrities promoting the vaccine. The others sympathetically covered fear-based vaccine ads from COVID patients who survived after being hospitalized in intensive care units. Uh, There were some issues with a couple of them as well that they ended up not actually being real. Uh, News outlets said that they have firewall policies in place under which the advertising department and newsroom are independent of each other. Uh, Let's see. Advertisers pay for space to share their messages as was the case here. And those ads are clearly labeled as such, says the Washington Post Vice President of Communications, Shani George. So, okay, the newsroom is completely independent from the advertising department. Really? Look, I here's, here's a very stark reality for a lot of you folks out there. No news department is independent from the advertising department. It doesn't exist. It doesn't. That's why I tell you that story about what happened with Envy Energy in Las Vegas. Now, are there going to be some news directors and program directors that are more willing to say, yeah, you just run with the story. The story is the most important. Sure. But guess what? They have bosses, too. And those bosses are in the business to do what? To inform people? No. To make money. And if the federal government is coming to you, in saying, oh, by the way, you know, the FCC is a part of the federal government, too. Hey, guess what? Uh, you're going to go ahead and promote our message on your programming. And you're not going to say anything bad about it. Exactly, right? According to public opinion polls, Americans' public view of the vaccine have been mixed. We already know that. Uh, and now we know that much more information has come out about the vaccines that end up um, proving that some of that skepticism, particularly for younger pop populations was well earned now there is another article that has come out and there basically forbes has an investigative reporter i'm going to do my best to get him on the show forbes has an investigative reporter which was considered one of their best reporters and they never published a single article that he had about fauci and his financial ties even though he wrote dozens of them and then eventually they fired him 
And there's a theory that the federal government is behind it. We'll talk about that coming up. News Talk 95.3, Michiana's News Channel. All right, so I ran into a Substack the other day, and I don't, I, I'm going to butcher his, his last name, so I apologize. Now, this is Adam Andrzejewski, and Andrzejewski, probably ruined that. Sorry, Adam. So anyway, he was with Forbes for eight years, okay? That is not a small amount of time to be at any media outlet. Eight years, he was at Forbes magazine. Now, he is a transparency advocate. Uh, he currently runs, what is open the books? Is it.com? Yeah, openthebooks.com. Okay, that's his new website. So he wrote tons of articles for Forbes magazine. And part of what he did is he would track down money and basically follow the money. That was this guy's job as a reporter. And he did it against Republicans. He did it against Democrats. He did it against anybody that, that, was the subject of a big story. So he's the CEO and the founder of OpenTheBooks.com. He relayed the story in his new Substack column following the termination that he just got from Forbes. After taking umbrage with a number of his Fauci-focused columns, including bombshell revelations about the Fauci household finances, he recalls this, quote, two directors, two bureau chiefs, and two top PR officers didn't send an email to the Forbes chief on a Sunday morning because they wanted to correct the record about Fauci's travel reimbursements. They sent that email to subliminally send a message. We don't like Andrewski's oversight work, and we want you to do something about it. Unfortunately, Forbes folded quickly. Now, when he published this on his uh, his uh, substack, and, and I encourage you, to, I'll put it in the Daily Show prep, obviously, including the articles surrounding this, um, but... This is, you know, he talks about having going years with every single one of his columns being published and dozens of them being selected, like like over 30 out of 50 being selected as an editor's choice article, which means the editors of the Forbes magazine chose to to basically highlight his work in their magazine and not a single one of them about Fauci got done. And this is a guy for eight years was basically considered their go-to guy about these types of issues. So he goes out there, and again, he, 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 he does this, and boom, they fire him, okay? So within 24 hours of the National Institutes of Health email to Randall Lane, my regular Forbes editor called and announced new rules. Forbes barred me from writing about Fauci and mandated pre-approval for all future topics. Then Forbes went silent and terminated my column roughly 10 days later on January 28th. On the day that Forbes canceled me, again, at the direction of the National Institute of Health, the editors bent the knee, a new piece on Fauci published, Fauci's portrait will soon hang in the Smithsonian. Of course, the article was designed, designated an editor's pick. So this guy writes these articles. He uncovers all of the financial ties that do not pass the smell test with Fauci and his family. Remember, his wife works there, too. Okay? He's trying to expose it. None of it gets anywhere over at Forbes. 
the National Institutes for Health, the federal government, sends a letter to his editor basically saying, this is acceptable, tell this guy to stop. And they go ahead and they fire him. The day that they fire him, they do publish an article about Fauci about how his portrait will hang in the Smithsonian Museum. And it was an editor's choice article. Get it? So, in 2014... Many of you might know this, many of you may not. In 2014, Forbes magazine was taken over by a specific entity. Anybody have any idea what that was? If you said China, you'd be right. Some of you who grew up reading Forbes magazine, and people like me who used to use Forbes magazine regularly on our shows because Forbes magazine was a good publication and no longer do so, we noticed a change after 2014, and that's their new Chinese ownership had propaganda to push, not news. So they went ahead and they took over. Who happens to have massive financial and personal relationships with China? Fauci does. Think that's a coinkadink? Again, go back to the bit that I played for you earlier, brought to you by Pfizer, all of those news agencies. Only reporting the positive aspects of Pfizer, none of the negative aspects. They should have been reporting both. So you could make an informed decision, but they didn't. They took millions of dollars from Pfizer and then they lied to you. And then the federal government, the National Institutes for Health, had a massive multi-million dollar advertising campaign paying all of those news outlets that were already being paid by Pfizer to promote Pfizer and the vaccines. And they weren't able to say bad things about them. And then... The one guy at a major publication who is highlighting that, hey, there's some real issues with Fauci's finances and his ties to China gets fired after being censored for two years. Interesting stuff, don't you think? You know how many corporations own 90% of your news? I've been over this before. Josh, newsman, Josh, do you have any idea how many corporations own 90% of the news outlets in this country? No, no, 90% of the news outlets in this country are owned by how many corporations? You think a lot? Six corporations own 90% of the news. You should see his face right now. Six corporations and 15 billionaires own 90% of all of the news information that you will digest in any week. 90%. This is how they're able to have, this place says this, this place says that, that place says that. Casey, there's all of these companies out there that say that you're wrong about masking and the vaccines. But I'm right, because here's the science. But all of these places, yeah, but they're all owned by the same guy. They're all getting paid the same money from Pfizer. They're all getting paid the same money from the National Institutes of Health. It's all an illusion. The mass media is basically six news outlets that regurgitate the same crap exponentially. It's like in the military. You got three or four guys and you set yourselves up to make it seem like it's an entire platoon attacking people. It's kind of like that. It's all an illusion. Representative Jake Teshka coming up in a little bit here on Newstalk 95.3, Michiana's news channel. MNC News time is 3.32. Time to check out Impress Jewelry Creations, creating more 
not more jewelry, but they are. I mean, meaningful jewelry for the moments that last a lifetime. Good God. And good afternoon. Thank you for tuning in. News Talk 95.3, Michiana's news channel. I am your host, Casey Hendrickson. Joining me on the line right now from District 7, Indiana Representative Jake Teshka. Jake, how you doing, man? I'm well, Casey. How are you? I'm hanging in there, dude. It has been a busy legislative session, to say the least. Um, one, I would say probably one of the more contentious, at least from the outside perspective, than we have had in a long time. Usually there's one or two issues, but it just seemed like there was always something that there was massive debate about. Let's talk about constitutional carry first. Constitutional carry survives the House, dies in the Senate like it always does. Liz Brown always kills it off. And the language survived, though, and then you guys were able to revive it. Kind of explain that process. Sure. You're right. Uh, So last year we had uh, passed constitutional carry out of the House. Uh, We like to call it lawful carry. Anybody that's lawfully able to to possess and carry a a firearm can do that uh, without a permit now uh, or will be able to. We passed out of the House last year, died in the Senate. We did the same thing this year with House Bill 1077. Uh, uh, This year, Senator Brown did give it a hearing. Uh, However, there was a, a poison pill amendment that was put in uh, in the Senate committee, which effectively killed the bill. Uh, but the language survived because uh, once language passes one chamber or the other, so one, uh, either the House or the Senate, uh, it becomes eligible to go into a bill during conference committee. Well, that's like the last two weeks of session where everybody's busily uh, running around the building trying to figure out uh, what language goes where. And, uh, and so this language ended up in House Bill 1296. Uh, which I co-authored, and um, we got it done on Tuesday night. Uh, we stayed until, uh, gosh, between 12.30 and 1 a.m. Uh, that night, making sure we got all of this good stuff done for Hoosiers before we got home, and um, and we, we did get that done. And so it's sitting on the governor's desk waiting uh, to be signed. Now, do you expect that the governor is just going to let it sit there and sunset into becoming law after that seven-day period, or do you think he's going to sign it because he has further political aspirations that that might help him in the state? Because he opposes constitutional carry. Yeah, that'll be an interesting thing to watch, Casey. I think uh, I think constitutional carry does become law in Indiana. I don't think that he vetoes this bill. Uh, however, I think that it will signal uh, that he's going to run for U.S. Senate if he does sign it. If he just lets it become law by uh, sitting on his desk for uh, for ten days, I think that that might uh, mean that he's uh, he's not going to take up that that race. But uh, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Now, what was it about 1296 that allowed that to get this language in with what 1296 already had in it, allowed that to get through the Senate when you couldn't get the language through on its own merits? Well, the, uh, the issue was that um, when the bill came out of the Senate uh, Judiciary Committee, it had this amendment in it, and uh, the, the full Senate wanted to vote on a clean bill, and they really needed to, uh, to whip those votes uh, in the meantime. And so... Um, uh, that uh, poison pill that went in in the uh, Senate Judiciary Committee effectively killed the bill over there. Uh, we knew that we had support. It was a narrow support. Uh, we knew we'd be able to get it passed there uh, if we got it into a different bill. Uh, there was an attempt to put it into uh, Senate Bill 209, uh, which I was a conferee on during the conference committee process. Uh, but the House members said, you know what? Uh, the Senate has killed this thing for the last several years. We're not going to let them put it into one of their bills. It's going to originate in the House bill. So that's where we found House Bill 1296 and made sure that it got through. Now, what year are you in when you're actually as a, as a state representative? Because you're obviously city councilman here, but how, yeah. how long have you been a state representative? I'm in my second year, so just finished up my second session. And, and here's the, the reason that I'm pointing this out, and, and you know, I've known you personally a long time. 
And we used to work together for a period of time as well. But, you know, the reason that I'm bringing this up is usually you don't see somebody who would be considered a, a sophomore or somebody as new as you authoring or co-sponsoring as many bills as you have. You've been very, very active. Did you go into the state legislature with a, a list of topics that you knew needed to be addressed in the state of Indiana? Or is this something that just kind of happened organically? Yeah, I sure did. I mean, I went in with with, you know, a list of things that I knew needed to be addressed. Uh, but also, you know, there's there's kind of this uh, mentality a lot of times that, uh, uh, and I heard it coming in as a freshman legislator, right? They said, uh, some folks said, hey, sit back and watch the process work out in your first couple of years, and um, and until you get your feet under you, and then you can you can get going. But you know, that's just not me, Casey. I uh, I'm naturally a, a leader, and so I wanted to jump out in front of these things uh, and, and do something. And and quite frankly, I'm an elected official just like anybody else in that building. Uh, and so I didn't feel like I needed to sit back and, and watch the process uh, before getting engaged. Uh, and quite frankly, I wouldn't be uh, serving my constituents uh, to the best of my ability by doing that. And so I think that uh, for me, um, it was it was easy to jump in and, and get in a mix of things. And and uh, and I have offered some bills. I had three bills cross the finish line uh, this year. One may actually get vetoed by the governor, but I think two of them may um, may make it into law. And uh, and it's uh, an ex- exciting process, and I love being a part of it. And I've actually seen your position on some things kind of evolve from what I would have expected you to have. So, I mean, watching you just kind of grow as a, as a human being as well as a politician has been great to see. But you also, I mean, we've had some defeats, I would say, from the population perspective, uh, critical race theory and decent material, things like that being shown to children in schools that didn't go the way that we wanted. And a lot of people are very upset, particularly with the Senate side of things. Talk about those de- debates and battles over those. Yeah, well, you mentioned it earlier in our conversation here. It was a, and certainly a, a contentious year here in the state house, and you could feel it. I mean, you could feel the tension uh, between the House and the Senate throughout the entire session. Um, again, we knew that uh, that we had some folks over there that we'd have to uh, we'd have to really twist their arm to to vote for some of this conservative legislation. I mean, we sent them probably the most conservative legislation that we have. Uh, in an era, right, and and um, and they just couldn't bring themselves to to get it across the line in the Senate, uh, particularly like you mentioned that our our, uh, our our CRT bill, our anti-indoctrination bill, parents' rights bill. Uh, I've heard it called all of those things. Uh, essentially, uh, transparency in our education, letting parents know uh, what's going on in their classrooms. And look, I'm the parent of a of a PHN student. And uh, so I'm certainly concerned about some of the things that I've seen uh, go on uh, locally and across the state. As a member of the Education Committee, I was uh, privy to a lot of this. Uh, We've gotten packets full of this obscene material that's in our school libraries. And so it was really important for me to, again, as a parent, uh, uh, first and foremost, before even as a legislator, to attack this issue. And, uh, And so I worked really hard with the authors on 1134. We got that through the Education Committee off the floor of the House. And uh, unfortunately, it died in the Senate. Uh, there were hopes that we might be able to resurrect some of that language in the uh, in the um, conference committee time. But uh, at the end of the day, as a, as a caucus in the House, we decided, look, we're not going to take a half a loaf on this. We're not going to let folks go home and claim victory on this issue uh, with half measures that don't really protect our children. And so uh, we made it clear uh, to the to our Senate colleagues that we were going to accept nothing less than the House passed version of 1134. And they just couldn't get there. And that's unfortunate because it leaves our children unprotected uh, for at least another year. And then the obscenity uh, thing, we, you know, we passed. I voted on that twice at least, if not three times, to get it out of the House uh, and out of committee. 
um, and uh, in the form of 1134. Uh, we saw it in the form of Senate Bill 17, and then finally in the form of Senate Bill 13, uh, 1369. Uh, we passed that out again late on Tuesday night, and the Senate defeated it, uh, essentially allowing. And, and let me tell you, I mean, there's stuff that I can't say on the air here with you yeah. that's in these books. I've been through um, that material too, and it's, it gets sure very, very dicey with the FCC when you go it. So I'm, I'm very familiar. Um, yeah, it's none of that stuff should obviously be in the classroom, but you know, this becomes kind of a, there was some criticism about 1134 in particular about the way that it was written, and a lot of people have said, hey, reach out to some of these national organizations, maybe Heritage, just as an example. Uh, to go ahead and help really nail down some of the language on these things. Is that something that that you will consider doing in the next legislative session just to help with the bill writing process and maybe get you over that hump? Oh, I absolutely, I absolutely will. I, I'm uh, in, in touch with a lot of these organizations, uh, Heritage, um, uh, Americans for Prosperity, different school choice uh, and school uh, uh, organizations, and, and we'll absolutely be pursuing that. Uh, you know, I think it's key to remember, though, we, we've got to make sure we've got 51 votes in the House, and we've got to make sure we've got 26 votes in the Senate. Uh, ultimately, we'd like the governor to sign that, so that's another person we need. But uh, but we can override a veto in Indiana uh, with a, a simple majority. So we've got a weak governor system. So really all we need is 51 and 26, and so ultimately we've got to get, we've got to get there. Hey, Jake, how's the family doing after that scare with that shooting? You know, Casey, they're doing really well. Good. We, uh, uh, we're doing really well. The kids uh, seem, you know, the, the, the blessing, I think, is that they're uh, so young that they didn't really understand the, the, the real implications of, of that incident. Uh, it was certainly a scary time. And, and you know what? I'm, I'm using this uh, story as, as an example as, I go through, as we went through this constitutional carry process. I have a lifetime carry permit. My wife did not. And so uh, she was left defenseless after that while this guy is still out on the streets. And, and so, you know, imagining a lot of other folks going through that. Uh, made me even more resolved to to make this happen this year. Well, Jake, we've been uh, real happy with your representation there in District 7. We appreciate your time this afternoon. Hopefully we'll keep doing this on the regular. Thanks, Casey. All right, man. Take care. we got more coming up. News Talk 95.3, Michiana's News Channel. Well, we went long with Jake Teshka, so we're going to be bouncing on out of here to get back on schedule. Presidential prediction on Lisa Brady, Fox News. President Biden saying again that Ukraine will never be a victory for Russian President Vladimir Putin, detailing how economic sanctions are crippling the Russian economy during a meeting with a visiting president of Colombia, who calls the Russian attack a horrifying moment for the world. I want to thank you for immediately condemning Russia's unjustifiable invasion and the atrocities they're committing in Ukraine. Meantime, the U.S. also accusing Russia of peddling false allegations of chemical weapons labs in Ukraine. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki says it's Russia, not the U.S., with a history of using chemical and biological weapons. And that uh, in this moment, we should have our eyes open for that possibility. But Psaki would not detail specific intelligence assessments on the potential use of chemical weapons by Russia in Ukraine or what response their use might trigger. But the president's intention of sending U.S. military to fight in Ukraine against Russia has not changed. 
President Biden has ruled out sending U.S. forces into Ukraine or enforcing a no-fly zone. Fox's Jared Halpern at the White House. The southern port city of Mariupol remains under siege. No food, power or water. We know that over 1,300 civilians have now been killed in that city alone, according to the deputy prime minister of Ukraine. They are trying to, what they say, continue to open up those humanitarian corridors for the city of Mariupol. But unfortunately, according to the Ukrainians, every single time they try to evacuate people, the Russians begin shelling. Fox's Brian Yenis. Russia also denies a deadly airstrike on a maternity hospital there yesterday, claiming the explosions were staged to smear Russia. A deal to end the baseball lockout still needs to be ratified, but the Associated Press reporting approval by the union's executive board with an owner's vote to come, it would salvage a 162-game season. America's listening to Fox News. I'm getting vaccinated with Prevnar 20. So am I, because I'm at risk for pneumococcal pneumonia. I'm asking about Prevnar 20 because there's a chance pneumococcal pneumonia could put me in the hospital. Age 65 or older, you may be at increased risk for pneumococcal pneumonia. Ask your doctor or pharmacist about getting vaccinated with Prevnar 20, pneumococcal 20-valent conjugate vaccine, a Pfizer vaccine that can help protect against pneumococcal pneumonia in just one dose. Prevnar 20 is approved for adults to help prevent infections from 20 strains of the bacteria that cause pneumococcal pneumonia. Continued approval may depend on a supportive study. Don't get Prevnar 20 if you've had a severe allergic reaction to the vaccine or its ingredients. Adults with weakened immune systems may have a lower response to the vaccine. The most commonly reported side effect was pain at the injection site. For additional common side effects and full prescribing information, please call 1-855-213-2138 or visit Prevnar20.com. I want to be able to keep my plans. So I'm asking my doctor about getting vaccinated with Prevnar20. Masking might end relatively soon on public transit, but for now, federal health officials are extending the current guidance while they work on new, more targeted advice. The CDC says they recommend mask wearing on public transportation continue until April 18th. That does not apply to school or childcare buses. Last month, the CDC guidance shifted when they said areas with lower transmission of COVID could take a break from wearing masks indoors. White House spokeswoman Jen Psaki highlighted the color-coded transmission maps in explaining why masks are still needed on public transportation. If we're in Washington, D.C. and we're in a green zone or a yellow zone, you can make a clear assessment. If you're moving from one zone to another and you're picking people up from one zone to another, it's a little bit different. She said that requires consultations with various agencies like the TSA and that those talks will occur between now and April 18th. Fox's Jessica Rosenthal, the CEO of Walt Disney Corporation, wants to meet with Florida's governor over the new law blocking classroom discussion of sexual topics in younger grades. Disney Chief Executive Bob Chapek wants to have a sit-down with Florida Governor Ron DeSantis over the state law now enacted disallowing teachers from holding classroom discussions about sexuality with kids from kindergarten to third grade. LGBT activists claim the law discriminates against them, though the law's text makes no mention of specific orientations. Disney came under fire for not condemning the law in a state where Disney wields considerable political and economic power. In Broward County, Florida, Eben Brown, Fox News. Could have been worse on Wall Street. The Dow down 112 at the close, pairing heavier losses after inflation hit another 40-year high. Recapping the breaking baseball news, players voting to accept the league's latest offer, which would end a 99-day lockout and salvage a 162-game season. This a day after more games were canceled through April 13th. But the deal still needs ratification. I'm Lisa Brady, Fox News.
Good afternoon. Thank you for tuning in. News Talk 95.3, Michiana's news channel. I am your host, Casey Hendrickson. Uh, you just heard in the uh, the news break that the man who was stabbed last month when his vehicle was stolen in Elkhart County has unfortunately passed away. Uh, 73-year-old Wayne Bontrager did die on Tuesday, and the Elkhart County prosecutor has now amended the charges against the suspect, Samuel Byfield, who is 22 years old, uh, to reflect murder. And this is yeah, this is an awful story. And, and I know that um, that family and friends of of uh, Wayne Bontrager listen to this show, and our heart goes out to you. It really does. So hopefully he will get some uh, some justice in the legal system. Democrats have broken ranks. They are demanding that Biden increase domestic oil production as he looks to Venezuela and Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia will not take his phone calls. Uh, there's the possibility of Iran even producing oil. So here's the thing. I don't really care where you stand on on ridiculous environmental issues. Um, does it sound at all like a good idea to get oil from Venezuela or Iran? You're going to be giving them money. They hate us. They're engaged in open hostilities with us. Why, why would you want to pay them for anything and, and enrich their coffers? Why? Saudi Arabia is at least an ally, and I get it. You know, Saudi Arabia and the history of the United States with Saudi Arabia is uh, tense. But King Salman is a reformer, and I know that a lot of people don't fully understand that because of the Khashoggi murder lies that, that ended up happening here. Khashoggi is not a journalist. Okay, He was, a, he was a, basically a spy trying to overthrow the Saudi government, but I, I digress. It's... The Saudi prince hates terrorists, and he hates radical jihadists. That's a friend you kind of want. I'm not saying you have to love the Saudi Arabian regime, but let's not also convict him for the things that his dad did. So Democrats are even breaking ranks on this. Democratic lawmakers are increasingly breaking with their party's narrative on fossil fuels as America faces a growing oil crisis. The Democratic Party's official... 2020 platform committed to combating the climate crisis and pursuing environmental justice, none of which means anything. It's all gobbledygook, as Rush Limbaugh would say. You know, as I've told you before, and I know that I covered extensively today, I think that when I covered the history of oil prices today on my early show, I think that I did a much better job when I incorporated that with the new information than I did when I previously did on this radio show. So if you... If you go and you watch the early show today on Rumble, rumble.com slash Casey, the host, I think you're going to like it. It was very informative. And I debunked a lot of narratives. Narrative number one, the president doesn't control gas prices. Okay, we don't have the same energy policy that we did in the 80s and the 90s. That's not how it works anymore. Trump helped dramatically control energy prices. Biden helped dramatically increase energy prices a completely different energy sector, completely different policy than it was under the Bush regime. I would also like to remind everybody that not only after years and years and years of the the radical left out there telling you increasing oil production won't reduce the price of gas and conservatives and libertarians going, no, you idiot, this is basic economics. Of course it will. We were proven correct. The left was proven incorrect. And that was 
fully on display. And that's why I tried to hammer this point home back in 2020 when there was an oil war between Russia and OPEC. Do you remember that? Josh, remember the big, the, the big great oil war between Russia and OPEC? Do you remember how the price of our gas in 2020 surged to $6 a gallon? Do you remember that? No, you don't. Do you know why? Because we produced enough oil to basically be shielded from the major impacts of that. And do you remember why the price war between Russia and OPEC ended? Because Donald Trump brokered a deal and threatened to put tariffs on both of those organizations if they didn't resolve it. That's what a leader looks like. Just so we can juxtapose Trump versus Biden here, during a massive international oil price war between Russia and OPEC, Trump threatened both sides and got them to negotiate and ended the conflict. Biden can't even get Saudi Arabia or the United Arab Emirates to take his phone call. Who do you think is the stronger world leader there? Who do you think is better for energy policy there? And as we've been highlighting, they've been lying to you about oil production under Biden versus Trump. They're not producing more oil under Biden than they were with Trump. They decreased oil production. That's a fact. You can go to the government's own website and you can see this. I've given it to you. I know that Bongino has given it to you. Numerous other publications have given it to you. The data is crystal clear. You just can't be lazy enough to not go look at it. The oil production in Biden's first year in 2021 was less than in 2020 and far less than 2019. When they tell you that we are producing more oil now than under Trump, what they're not telling you is the projections are that at some point in 2023, they will produce more oil than under Donald Trump. Not this year, sometime next year, and they don't even know when. And it's just a projection. There's a lot of things that could happen in the U.S. and globally between now and then that could change that. But they are not producing more oil. They are producing less. And it started the first day that Joe Biden walked into the Oval Office and immediately started attacking the energy sector. And for those liberals out there going, oh, this guy, I know that you are too lazy to actually go and look at anything, so I'll just give you a couple of quick little facts, okay? Just a couple. After Joe Biden's first month in office, gas prices went up 18%. In July of 2021, gas prices were up 40%, and they were at their highest level in seven years. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, did Russia invade Ukraine in 2021? Nope. In July of 2021, you weren't dealing with a Russia-Ukraine situation. It is the same as it had been there since 2014. So if it's really Putin, since they're trying to rebrand this as Putin's fault, the gas prices are so expensive, if that's the case... Then why did gas prices go up the very first month that Joe Biden was in office? They technically went up before he went into office, but obviously, you know, because of the results of the election, gas prices started going up immediately. But I, I realize that you have to tack that on to Trump, even though it was because that was the response to Biden coming into office based on the election. But in his first month, 
the price of oil and gas went up 18%. And by July, it was the highest it had been in seven years. Explain to me how that is Vladimir Putin's problem. How is he responsible for that? He's not. So it's got to be somebody else, right? Maybe the guy who went out and attacked the energy sector, approved zero new permits, and is lying to you about all of those permits. You got even Democrats looking at this and going, this is ridiculous. No way in the world are we going to be getting oil from Venezuela. What's wrong with you? Because it's stupid. Republicans have now introduced a no oil for te- uh, from terrorists act, which is designed to prevent Biden from doing what he's trying to do. We made this case yesterday, and I know that some of you missed it, but we made this case yesterday that, look, if you're going to get more oil anyway, it makes more sense from a national security standpoint to get your own oil since you have the ability to do that. So get your own oil. You don't need to go outside of the United States to get that oil. It's already here. From an economic standpoint, it's also better for you to get the oil from your own backyard. Means jobs, infrastructure, local economies grow, retail grows, taxes grow. It's better economically. It's also better environmentally. You, we have environmental regulations when we do our, our oil drilling. They don't in other countries. Plus you have all of the stuff where you're shipping it across the globe and everything else that's involved in all of that. All of that has a negative environmental impact, right? So from an environmental perspective, it makes sense to take it from your own backyard. This is, it is insane. Insane to not be taking your own oil. And instead going to Iran and Venezuela and Saudi Arabia and OPEC and everything else. Part of the reason that OPEC had to bow to us when Trump was president was because OPEC didn't have power over us anymore like they did under Obama and Bush and everybody else. They didn't have that power. They didn't have that pull anymore. We controlled the oil market. Following on the, oh, there's a moral argument too for getting our own oil. You know, we're decent people and and the Venezuelan government is not. And the Iranian government is not. And people on all sides of the aisle believe that the Saudi government is not. Following on the heels of his announcement, Republicans unveiled new legislation aimed at blocking the U.S. from buying oil from Iran. The Republican Study Committee introduced this No Oil from Terrorists Act with the argument that the Biden administration needs to focus on boosting domestic energy rather than buying oil supplies uh, from hostile terrorist regimes. Yeah, exactly. You know, in the nuclear negotiations that we were talking about a couple of days ago, earlier in the week, in the nuclear negotiations, Iran came away from it and said, wow, we had way more concessions than we were ever expecting to get from, from the U.S., including removing known terrorists in Iran from the terrorist designation list. So we're removing all of these, all of these, uh, well, let's just call them hindrances to Iran being able to operate on the global scale and fund terrorism and their nuclear weapons ambitions, which are undeniable. We removed a lot of that ability with the sanctions, and Joe Biden's getting rid of them. You know what else he's doing? Hold on a second. I got I got this story, too. And, and this is, I didn't get to it yesterday, and I should have, and frankly, I owe you an apology for not getting to it yesterday, okay? But 
Okay, the Biden administration is now freeing the 20th 9-11 hijacker from Gitmo. Isn't that nice? See, one of, one of the hijackers is still here. 20th hijacker, still here. It's in Gitmo. They're letting him go. Mohammed, Manny, Ahmed, al Katani. He's being let go. Isn't that nice? Thanks, Joe Biden. Where do you think he's going to end up? Probably where the other Gitmo detainees who were let go ended up. On the battlefield in Afghanistan, now running the Afghan government. So you got Democrats turning against Joe Biden. You got Republicans trying to introduce legislation to prevent the country from buying oil from terrorist sponsoring states, which Democrats will defeat and the news media will not make a big stink out of. While the administration continues to run around and lie to everybody about their own oil production, and you've got every neighbor, friend, uh, you know, internet troll running around and going, President doesn't control gas prices because they don't understand what's actually happening. And they don't understand any of the markets or any of the policies. They're completely clueless people. But I know they've, they've, got, they've got social media, so there goes hubris, right? Your own egos dictate now that you know what you're talking about. You don't. So they're still pushing you to an electric vehicle. Is it worth buying an electric vehicle? I mean, the short answer is no, but we're going to break it down even further than I did yesterday for you. Got more coming up, 95.3 MNC. Ever since before the election, Trump is still president. The price of gasoline was still coming down. After the election is over, the price starts to skyrocket consistently every single month. There's a couple of months here and there at the end of last year where it dropped a little bit, and that's it. None of which has anything to do with Putin or Ukraine or anything else. Now, I've, I've given you the basic math on the cost of buying a 50 uh, you know, roughly a $53,000 electric vehicle. That's kind of like the low end price of an electric vehicle is between, you know, 49 and 50, 55. So like 53 is kind of like right in the middle between buying one of those versus just keeping the vehicle that you have and paying for the increased uh, gasoline prices. And you're going to save money unless we start getting like seven and $8 gallon gas. You might be able to save money at that point, but not over the, the length of the loan. And, and that's not including taxes and registration and all of the additional costs. It's purely about operational cost with your, your monthly payment and, and everything else. So and, and it doesn't factor in your electricity either, which, of course, electricity prices are going up. But the Federalists broke it down. They went ahead and did a whole analysis of this. And they pointed out that when you factor in all of the costs, guess what? It is way more expensive for you to buy an electric vehicle than to keep the car that you have that runs on gas. And I have nothing against electric vehicles. I've already told you guys, I'm interested in having one. I, I really don't have a problem with it. A friend of mine yesterday has got a Mustang Mach-E, and he's, he's telling me that even though he does have reduced range, he still loves it. it he doesn't have range anxiety because he's close enough to work, and he absolutely loves his car, loves it, wants me to drive it badly. But for many of you, this is not a practical option. And having Pete Buttigieg and Stephen Colbert and all of these other elitist snobs going out there and going, 
Well, if you can't afford four or five dollar gallon gas, just go ahead and buy yourself a fifty to one hundred fifty thousand dollar car. That's not logical. Those are people who live devoid of reality, and that's that's that bubble that we talk about, where people live in their own little bubble and they just regurgitate nonsense to one another over and over and over again. It's like the human centipede of politics. MNC News Time is 4.31. Time to check out Impress Jewelry Creations, creating meaningful jewelry for the moments that will last a lifetime. And good afternoon. Thank you for tuning in. News Talk 95.3, Michiana's news channel. I am your host, Casey Hendrickson. Wow. <sighs> we only halfway through this thing? Are you serious? No, we're not. We're halfway through. It's 440. All because of O'Reilly? Yeah, well, O'Reilly does steal half of my show. It's uh, <clears throat> People keep asking me, he's like, when are you going to go ahead and get rid of uh, get rid of O'Reilly? We want more of you. First of all, I appreciate that. There's a lot of people who do actually want O'Reilly on there, but, you know, it's it's, it's a lot of money involved. <laughs> so, good thing is I have a second show, and you don't have to worry about that. All right, so I did put the chart. For those of you who are uh, asking, I do have the chart of the 18-month average per month price of gas in the daily show prep today, including the full analysis done by the Federalist Papers. Um, and I think you did one on 953MNC.com, right? You published an article about that earlier, Josh. So there's one on 953MNC.com as well uh, about you know transferring to an electric vehicle. And I have nothing against electric vehicles, guys. I really don't. I had a lot against hybrids, but I have nothing against electric vehicles. Uh, it's just that for many of you, they're not really practical. If you can afford one and you want one for the cool factor... And because of the instant, uh, you know, torque and stuff like that, yeah, by all means, please, you know, get one. I, I would love an electric motorcycle, which is, by the way, the epitome of death trap because nobody can hear you. But I still would like to have one around, you know, not for long trips, not for major roadways and things like that. But, you know, they're just kind of cool to, to, you know, fool around on. But for many people, it's obviously not practical. It's not in their budget. If, if you're struggling with the idea of paying 4 and $5 per gallon of gas, you're certainly not in a position to buy a vehicle that's going to cost you, you know, eight to $900 per month minimum in your payments. And that's just, that's not a feasible thing for anybody to do. Uh, but unfortunately, that's what's being pushed on a lot of folks. And, you know, you got a bunch of these bobbleheads out there. Speaking of bobbleheads, I still got that Buttigieg bobblehead sticking in my window in my studio because we got full beta energy in here. And that bobblehead is just, oh, yeah, just go ahead and, yeah, do, yeah, do whatever, you know, yeah, great. And most of the people who are bobbling their heads like like these idiots and saying, yeah, Buddha Judge, tell them to buy electric, they can't afford an electric car. They can't. And I I, I can't stress this enough. I know that you've heard me say this, and I, you're probably sick and tired of it, but Tesla is the world leader in electric vehicles. Is there anybody out there who dares challenge that fact? Right. I didn't think so. They're the world leader in electric vehicles, period. They're the pioneer. They're the champions. They're the king of the hill. The federal government chose not to give you the tax credit slash rebate 
because I don't remember which one it is. And I'm too lazy to look it up. The tax credit slash rebate on electric vehicles if you buy a Tesla. Why? Because Tesla's not a union shop. So the federal government doesn't want you to buy a Tesla. The federal, federal government only wants you to buy a General Motors or a Ford electric vehicle. Are any of the GM electric vehicles still on the road or are they all recalled because they're doing that spontaneous combustion thing a couple of months ago? They're big like EVs. They were blowing up left and right. I, I don't know if they're still on the road or if that was an easy repair or what. I have no idea. I haven't checked into it, so I'm just spitballing here. But remember there was a whole problem where Chevy was basically telling everybody, hey, just like, don't park them near buildings and trees and don't get in them. Remember that? That was like three months ago. It wasn't that long ago. And to my knowledge, Ford has not had that issue, thank God. Um, but Tesla's the king of the hill, period. And for the federal government to actively engage in competition against the king of the hill and the pioneer in electric vehicles while promoting electric vehicles really should be all of the information that you need to know what's really going on here. This isn't about promoting electric vehicles. This isn't about promoting you to get into an electric car. It's not about environmentalism or anything else like that. It's not. It's all about politics, guys. Everything is about politics. When I ended my segment with Tucker Carlson the other day, the way that I have done it so many times on this show, and I said, it's the political class versus you and me. I mean it every single time. Some of you are just unwilling to accept it. You're so knee-deep in your own propaganda and your tribes. You just That's what you're going to do. Okay, so you're a tribalist too. No, I, I'm not. I, I'm clearly aligned with one, but let's be honest. You hear me criticize Republicans on this show a lot. Josh, would you say that's a fair assessment? Yeah. And I realize that some of you out there don't hear that because you don't want to hear that. And I realize that a lot of you complain about things that I say because you don't actually pay attention to what it is that I said. Or you heard from somebody who heard from somebody who heard from somebody that I said something that I didn't actually say. And you you felt compelled to write me a letter. I get that a lot, too. But the reality is. I don't care about the parties. Now, I went back to the Republican Party a couple of years ago. I told everybody that. When it happened, I told everybody. I'd left them a long time ago. The state party in the state of Indiana is a flipping disaster. I like I like some of the county parties around this area. Not all of them. A lot of you got a lot of work to do. Mostly because of your own ego. The Michigan Republican Party is one of the biggest disasters in the history of politics. I don't know how to explain how bad they really are at what they do. I, that's not the Republicans in Michigan. It's just the state party is a mess. It's an absolute unmitigated disaster. You got the Liz Cheney's out there ruining, ruining the country. And I don't really know how else to say it. The Adam Kinzingers and the Liz Cheney's, they do not care about any of you. They don't care about the United States of America. They don't care about the Constitution. They don't care about what this country stands for. They're not interested in it. Just like AOC is not interested in it. And Ilhan Omar and everybody else, Rashida Tlaib and all of the other people who hate America, they're not interested in it, folks. They're not. 
both parties, I will say to the two main parties, the two main parties have people within them that care. But those people aren't in control. That's the problem. So on the Republican side, you've seen them kind of come together and try to fight the swamp, if you will, or the system, if you're a bit older. And that's the Freedom Caucus. You know, they don't really have anything like that on the Democrat side of things. You know, the Tulsi Gabbards, they're not accepted in the party. The Joe Liebermans, they're not accepted in the party. And you, you need to get to a point where we can actually stop looking at each other as enemies. There are some people who are enemies, guys. Somebody who wants to destroy the entire country, somebody who wants to promote pornography to your children, somebody who wants to promote racism against people based on skin color, both as an oppressor and the oppressed perpetually and that they can't succeed. Those people are evil. They need to be resisted with the full vigor of every amount of energy that you have within a legal process, obviously. They're evil. You have to engage them. But you have to stop protecting evil just because they're in your camp. And unfortunately, that's what we have a real problem with in this country. You got people out there running around right now in the Indiana legislature who think it's okay for your nine-year-old child to see a drawing of a gratuitous and explicit sexual act within the classroom. They think that's okay. That's not acceptable. And they think that that's okay because they haven't bothered to look at that picture. They don't know that that picture exists. Or they do, and they're too afraid of getting called bad things by the teachers' union. When there is actual evil, you got to stand up to it, even if it's in your own ranks. These Democrats here who are looking at Joe Biden and saying, no, we're not going to buy oil from Iran. Are you kidding me? They're standing up to evil. Do I agree with them? No. I talk about Ro Khanna a lot. I disagree with Ro Khanna, Representative Khanna, on everything. But I think he's a decent human being. And I think that he actually cares. And I don't think that he's corrupt. We just disagree on everything. I'd go have a beer with the guy. I'd hang out with him. Because he's not an evil guy. But there's a lot of evil. A lot. And I'm not trying to proselytize or, or make this a religious. It's not about that. You know bad things when you see it. And you have got to stop excusing it because it's happening in your tribe simply because the other tribe is worse. And that's the political system that I talked about where they've set it up to where to get these micro donations year round instead of just fundraising during the political season. Everything is about demonizing the other side, making the other side the epitome of evil. So you get scared and you get angry and they can control and manipulate your behavior. And we're seeing that all over our media right now. And people are falling for it left and right. And part of that is the hubris that people have and their egos because of social media. My opinion matters. No, it doesn't. Nobody will notice if you never post again on, on your social media. Nobody will notice if I never post again on my social media either.
It's just a reality. More coming up. News Talk 95.3, Michiana's News Channel. Alrighty. Well, we're finally down to like an hour left, right? Almost there, ladies and gentlemen. Don't forget, you can watch the live stream. Go to rumble.com slash Casey the host. Rumble.com slash Casey the host. Uh, we're going to go into a couple of other things here. Some propaganda out of you, Ukraine and Russia. And also, um, how much can you really trust about some of the stuff that you're seeing right now? And, and I'll, I'll get into it. You know, there's... There's a lot that maybe potentially you should be concerned about seeing, but uh, we'll get to that. We'll also get to a new major study, which says Casey was right. All of that. And of course, much, much more coming up on Newstalk 95.3, Michiana's news channel. Really do want to address though, right at the five o'clock hour, when we come back from news. This project Veritas expose on the New York times. This is big in January 6th coming up next. And good afternoon. Thank you for tuning in. News Talk 95.3, Michiana's news channel. I am your host, Casey Hendrickson. Uh, I always said happy Friday, but it's not, is it? It's not, it's not Friday. So, sorry. <laughs> we all have another day to get through. Want to thank R&B Car Company. Locations in South Bend and Warsaw. R&B Car Company are your used car experts. Uh, Project Veritas, you know, it, you should definitely watch their videos on Rumble and on their website. Uh, Project Veritas, man, it, it's just, folks, they are killing it. I don't know how else to say it. They're they're just absolutely crushing it. The entire year, I mean, they're always good, but the entire year, they have been crushing it. And they've done it again. And this time, it pertains to the New York Times, January 6th, FBI, undercover operatives, and that sort of thing. You know, this, it's just so good. So, uh, Pulitzer Prize winning New York Times reporter said that the January 6th media coverage was over the top and that the FBI was was involved in January 6th. This is a New York Times national security correspondent, Matthew Rosenberg. You have heard us talk about Matthew Rosenberg on this show. You've heard everybody else in the world talk about Matthew Rosenberg. Uh, Matthew Rosenberg is a major, major reporter over at the New York Times. Okay, This isn't like some underling. This is a big deal. This is a big deal. So he said on January 6th, there were a ton of FBI informants amongst the people who attacked the Capitol. It was like me and two other colleagues who were there on January 6th outside and we were just having fun. I know I'm supposed to be traumatized, but like all these colleagues who were in the Capitol building and are like, oh my God, it was so carried. I'm like, bleep off. Now, there's a couple of people 
in the news media who are saying, it was just traumatizing. I don't know what I'm going to do. Okay. Um, yeah, those are people who should not be in the news business. Because what happened there was akin to really your average heavy metal concert. Let's be honest. Rosenberg said, I'm like, come on. It's not the kind of place I can tell someone to man up, but I kind of want to be like, dude, come on. You are not in any danger. These bleeping little dweebs who keep going on about their trauma, shut the bleep up. They're bleeping bleeps. They were making a they were making too big a deal. They were making this an organized thing. It wasn't. So again, this is, you know, this is a major, major reporter for the New York Times saying that the news media exaggerated what happened on January 6th, that there were in fact federal agents inside the crowd on January 6th, including the crowd that attacked the Capitol and rioted. And when he was approached by James O'Keefe about it, he stood by those comments, although he obviously didn't want to talk to him uh, because he was going to get into trouble. In the video, this is Project Veritas writing now. In the video, Rosenberg also revealed that January 6th was fun, a contradiction to his reporting on January 6th as a violent interruption to the transition of power in American history. So when Project Veritas points out that Rosenberg is like, yeah, it was totally fun. Yeah, everything's great. Well, that's not what you wrote at the time. So why did you write at the time that it was super dangerous and extremely violent and everything else, but now you're saying it was like fun? Uh, What else do we have here? Sound bites of Rosenberg published on Tuesday showing him saying it's not a big deal as the media are making it. Because they were making too big of a deal of it. They were making this an organized thing that it wasn't. James O'Keefe revealed that Rosenberg's article titled The Next Big Lies, January 6th is No Big Deal, or a left-wing plot, was written around the same time that he was making contradictory statements to a Project Veritas undercover reporter. So at the same time that Project Veritas' undercover reporter is talking to him and he's going, yeah, January 6th wasn't a big deal, he was writing articles about how it was a lie to say January 6th wasn't a big deal. Get it? Next part of it. Project Veritas released part two of its series on a New York Times reporter, Matthew Rosenberg, on Wednesday night. This story focused on statements that Rosenberg makes about what happens inside the New York Times, as well as his confidential sources and agencies like the CIA and the NSA. Remember, he's a a national security correspondent. One of the bigger ones in the country. One of the most surprising moments from the footage was Rosenberg speaking about his confidential sources, including the source of what Rosenberg calls that ridiculous, like, P-tape. And, of course, that's the reference to the fake, never-happened P-tape with Donald Trump. Which everybody understood in the Steele dossier when it was first published was a lack of garbage. Was a, was a pile of garbage, excuse me, lacking any evidence. And then all of a sudden, everybody pivoted and said, let's just pretend the dossier is gospel now. Rosenberg, oh, hold on a second. Rosenberg is likely referring to BuzzFeed's 2017 publishing of sections of an unverified intelligence report by former, on former President Trump and his relationship with Russia, frequently referred to as a Steele dossier. The Steele dossier claimed that a tape existed of Trump engaging in lewd acts while visiting Russia, but Rosenberg tells a Project Veritas undercover reporter that the tape doesn't exist. We know it doesn't exist. 
We have always known that it doesn't exist. Now, keep in mind, this is being released now, but this all happened quite some time ago. Rosenberg also discussed what's happened in the newsroom at the New York Times, revealing that there is, quote, a real internal tug of war between like the reasonable people and some of the crazier leftist bleep that's worked its way in there. That's what Rosenberg is saying about the New York Times. There's an internal struggle between people who are serious about being journalists and reporters and the leftist propagandists inside. Rosenberg added, they're not the majority, but they're very vocal, loud minority that dominates social media and therefore has just hugely outsized influence. He also said that he thinks this is alienating its subscribers, who he describes as prosperous. Rosenberg then said his colleagues at the New York Times are bullies and not the clearest thinkers, some of them, before calling the, uh, calling the people that end up at the paper very neurotic people. Rosenberg, who's been with the New York Times for over a decade, also spent some time discussing one colleague in particular, Adam Goldman, saying that he's a terrible writer. First of all, Adam Goldman is a horrible writer. We have mocked him and made fun of him many times on the show. He's just not good at conceptualizing things. He's not good with words. It's a skill. It's a hard one. Editors do all of his writing for him. After going deeper into the internal schism at the New York Times, Rosenberg then commented on the Times, Ongoing legal fight with Project Veritas. James O'Keefe, that was bleeped up. We may well lose that one, said Rosenberg. And by the way, Project Veritas continues to make progress in that case, and they are winning the case. Uh, just, you know, this, <laughs> James O'Keefe, you know, he basically, he approached him in, in the cafe, and he's like, hey, man, do you stand by your comments here? And he goes, yeah, I stand by everything. He didn't want to talk to James O'Keefe, but the point is, he said, I stand by everything that I said. So there's an awful lot of information here. One, you've got a national security correspondent who is one of the most prestigious and influential ones in the country, who is telling you that there were a ton of FBI informants and agents in, in the crowd on January 6th and in the Capitol on January 6th which we already know, we've already highlighted some of those people and their suspicious behavior, and that many of them may have actually instigated what happened on January 6th. Doesn't justify everybody else for participating, but that's mob mentality sort of thing. We've also got him admitting that it wasn't a big deal, nobody was any, in any danger, while at the same time writing articles about how it was a big deal and everybody was in danger. So he's, he's lying, in his articles that he was writing in order to inflate what January 6th really was. He also admits to a power struggle happening within the New York Times between crazy leftists and reasonable people. I, this is particularly astounding. Also admitting that they knew that a lot of the Steele dossier was completely fabricated, yet they still published about it. There's a lot of information in this. And again, this is, you know, all of the information that Project Veritas releases all is extremely important. They've never missed. But when you get somebody like, like Rosenberg here, it's a big fish. Pay attention to this story. They're not done yet, by the way. Uh, they say that they have more to release. You got more coming up. News Talk 95.3, Michiana's News Channel.
and good afternoon. Thank you for tuning in. News Talk 95.3, Michiana's news channel. I'm expecting that my bank account is going to increase today at some point in time. It's always nice when you live rent-free in people's heads. You assume that they're going to be paying you for that, but I don't, I don't know if they, they do. I would like to get that. That'd be great. Uh, what else do we have here? So uh, a lot of stuff coming out of Ukraine. So let me just talk about a couple of things here. Um, the hospital so-called bombing. Um, there's clearly people that are injured in this hospital in Ukraine. Okay. Now the Russian perspective, which again, you should hear if you believe them fine. If you don't fine, but you need to hear it. The Russians today, like the, you know, the peace negotiations kind of broke off and uh, Lavrov was basically saying, we didn't attack the hospital. But what's interesting about that is it seems to kind of contradict some other statements. So Russia said that the hospital was not an operation and had been used by Ukrainian forces. Well, that would seem to suggest that they thought it was OK to attack the hospital, right? Now Russia is saying that they didn't attack the hospital and that this was a staged bombing in order to frame the Russians. So here's the problem. While a lot of propaganda has been pushed out by Ukraine that has lied about Russia and some of their actions in, act- in, uh, in Ukraine, uh, the problem is that we have actual wounded pregnant women all over television. You can see them being pulled out of the hospital. You can see kids being pulled out of the hospital. So clearly there were people inside the hospital in the maternity ward uh, who are pregnant deeply, deeply pregnant, about to give birth, and there were kids there. So that's not up for debate. Now, Russia appears to be making the case that the Ukrainians are behaving like the Palestinians in that they're using human shields. They've made this claim before in other parts of the country. They've made this claim about what has happened in the Donbass conflict and everything else. So I... To what extent that that may or may not be happening, folks, I don't know. But as I've told you before, you have to be very, very careful with the uh, Russia is attacking civilians bit. If the civilians have taken up arms against the Russians and the civilians are engaging the Russians, which, by the way, I support them doing, they're no longer civilians. They're active combatants, and the Russians will engage them. You don't get to pick up a rifle or a javelin missile and shoot at the Russians and then have them shoot back at you and then get to say, I'm an innocent civilian and they shot me. That's not how that works. And unfortunately, the Western media is kind of portraying some of that that way. And you need to be very, very careful with that. Now, with that said, what I find interesting about this is this is happening in the same city at Muriel or I don't know how to say it. Okay, I apologize. This is the same city that I showed you. Sorry, I showed you all videos of the other day where the Russians were going out of their way to not kill civilians. This is the exact same city. So what happened in a two-day period where the Russians were refusing to shoot civilians? And in this city, by the way, there's a massive rally every single day with like thousands of people. And they always approach the Russian troops um, and they're unarmed. The civilians are unarmed. Uh, I think there's been one like violent clash with Russian troops, but generally speaking, peaceful protest. The Russian troops don't engage in any violence. They don't hurt anybody. And this is the same city that the maternity ward hospital is in. So what changes in a couple of days? And there are things that can change. Don't get me wrong. But I'm just saying, from a perspective here, if the Western media is going to go, oh, they're heartless and they're just attacking hospitals now, why is it that two days ago the Russians weren't just mowing down the crowd of protesters? 
And I suppose that you could argue that it wouldn't look very good uh, to the international community. You're probably right about that. Friendly reminder that the the Russian people generally consider the Ukrainians to be their brothers. Uh, Ukrainians don't feel that way, but generally speaking, the Russians do. And I should say the Ukrainians not in the eastern region generally don't feel that way. They feel autonomous. They're Ukrainian. Whereas in the eastern part of the country, Donbass, Crimea, they identify as Russian and they don't want to be a part of Ukraine, which is what kind of this conflict is all about in addition to the the uh, revolt that happened in 2014 and the movement from uh, Ukraine away from Russia towards NATO. So I don't know what happened there, but it is clear that pregnant women and kids were in that hospital. Uh, How many of them, to what extent, I don't know. Ukraine is claiming that kids are buried in the rubble. I don't know that that's true or not. When they go through the hospital, and this is the one thing that I kind of noticed, when they go through the hospital with cameras, because they're going into the hospital now and they're showing the rubble from inside the hospital. There isn't a lot of blood, which is a good thing, but that could be an indicator that maybe Ukraine is inflating things just a little bit. I don't know that they are, and neither do you. And it's important that everybody kind of keep that perspective here. If you have both sides of the story, you can kind of pick at it and see which one's which. You know, in this city, there's been protests every single day, and the Russians haven't killed the protesters. The Russians have gone out of their way to avoid civilian casualties. So why then would they attack a maternity hospital? Does it, in your mind, give some credibility to the the statement that the Russians gave that they think the hospital is being used, at least they had intelligence that the hospital is being used by Ukrainian troops, and that's why they hit the hospital? Um, I, I don't know. Uh, the Russians are kind of giving conflicting statements on that. Maybe they had bad intelligence. If they had bad intelligence, they should have just said that. But now they're claiming that they didn't even do it after originally saying that the hospital wasn't in operation, which if the maternity hospital is not in operation, why are there pregnant women there? And there are pregnant women with real wounds and there's kids there as well. So clearly The hospital was in operation in some capacity. Maybe it wasn't fully open. Maybe there was only a few people in there. I don't know. But clearly, there are pregnant women that were in that hospital when it was hit. And from the Russian perspective, they're given two stories, and we've got pregnant people there. I don't don't know. I don't know if it was an intentional hit by the Russians, if it was accidental, if they had bad intelligence about uh, Ukrainians occupying the hospital and using it for cover. I don't know what to tell you, but neither does anybody else. And if nothing else, you at least need to hear both sides of it. So the Russians are are accusing the Ukrainians of doing it themselves in order to uh, damage Russian credibility, which doesn't seem very plausible. But earlier, Russia was saying that the hospital wasn't in, in operation and that Ukrainian troops were using it, which may or may not be the case. But we do know that there are pregnant women that were inside that hospital who did get injured as a result of the attack. So... There's, there's conflicting statements from Russia here. It seems to be that the Ukrainians are the ones telling at least mostly the true story on that particular incident. But um, still, don't know why they would shift that policy of not hurting civilians in that same city just a couple of days ago to all of a sudden attacking a maternity hospital. That seems, that seems to be a dramatic change in strategy. Anyway, more coming up. News Talk 95.3, Michiana's news channel. MNC News Time is 5.32. Time to check out Impressed Jewelry Creations, creating meaningful jewelry for the moments that will last a lifetime.
And good afternoon. Thank you for tuning in. News Talk 95.3, Michiana's news channel. Speaking of the latest virtue signaling, <clears throat> uh, McDonald's and KFC and Starbucks are facing a boycott for continuing business in Russia. Uh, let's see. Coke and Pepsi also keep up operations after many American firms have pulled out. And McDonald's, I, I saw the announcement, McDonald's is going to close shop. Did you see that? McDonald's is going to close shop in Russia. So it's it's good to know. I think it's like 840 some odd locations or something like that. So it's good to know that McDonald's is going to you know close shop in Russia to virtue signal to the rest of the world that they're not going to do business in any country that violates the basic human rights of any other people anywhere in the world. They still have over 4,000 stores in China, though. I don't think that virtue signal is working out the way that, that McDonald's was, was wanting it to work out, but um, yeah. That's all I'm saying. If you're going to do it, that's fine. I, I can get behind that. You just got to be consistent about it. And if you're not going to operate in Russia because Russia's violating human rights with their invasion of Ukraine and all of that stuff, ignoring everything that's been happening in Donbass since 2014, then shouldn't you also pull out of everywhere else that is violating human rights? Nope, didn't think so. That's right. That's, yep. Too many stores, too much money to be had in China. So you'll just, you'll keep, keep selling Big Macs to the Chinese while the Uyghurs suffer. It's good to know. Thanks, McDonald's. Appreciate that. More coming up. 95.3 MNC. Man, I keep getting this, so I, I was just talking about this here. Wow, I'm back with more time than I usually have. What's that about, Josh? Um, this just kind of came up. So I did a fact check today on, on TikTok. I know some of you are very surprised that I'm on TikTok, but I've told you before, I have a mission, okay? There's a very specific TikTok mission. You need to get me to 1,000 followers. I don't want you to create a TikTok. If you want to create a TikTok, do it. I don't want you to create one. But if you are already on TikTok, follow me at Casey the Host. If your kids or your grandkids or your great-grandkids or your puppies and kittens are on TikTok, have them follow me too. Um, just, just go into their phone and do it. Don't tell them about it. Just do it. When I get to 1,000, I can then live stream on TikTok. And as I've said before, you know, is TikTok trash? 100%. Absolute trash. However... That is the trash that everybody is hanging out on. And if everybody is there, then I'm going to do my best to say my piece before they ban me. So if we get to 1,000, I can do a live stream there, and then we'll see how fast they ban me. So that's kind of the experiment is to see how fast they actually ban me on TikTok. But I don't want you to create one uh, unless you actually want to. But if you already have one, just hit follow, even if you don't use it. Just log in, hit follow, go away, never use it again. Um, but I didn't fact check. Uh, something today because somebody said the Tonkin Gulf incident in Vietnam didn't happen. That's a lie. It did happen. There was two incidents. One happened on August 2nd, 1964. That was a very real attack on the USS Maddox by several North Vietnamese fast attack boats. The one on August 4th didn't happen. That was the one where the radio operator thought they were being attacked, but they actually weren't. And yes, the Johnson administration used that to promote U.S. involvement in Vietnam. But that doesn't change the fact that the USS Maddox was attacked on August 2nd. That is very real. 
And what has happened is this, you know, the fake news of that throughout our entire educational history has led people to believe that, oh, the Tonkin Gulf incident was a false flag. No, it wasn't. Just like we didn't lose Vietnam, the North Vietnamese accepted all of our terms and Saigon didn't fall for two years after we left the conflict. And weapons of mass destruction were found in Iraq. This is a part of the congressional record. It's not up for debate. And I know people keep saying, like, Bongino and others keep saying that WMDs were not found. I heard Tucker Carlson say it the other day. That's not true. Of course they were found. Not as much as they thought, but they also didn't expect them to have a a up-and-running nuclear weapons program, but they did. So maybe I'll address that on tomorrow's show, on the early show. 